0: Welcome to the Heartland Free Church Sermon Podcast. We are so happy to have you joining us today. If you are a first-time listener or first-time visitor here at the church, we would love to get connected with you. You can click that link in the podcast summary. That is our online connection card. If you'd just like to learn more about us as a church, you can visit heartlandfree.com or you can download the Heartland app in whatever app store you prefer. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a fantastic message for you this morning, and we will be getting into that right now. We are uh, continuing our journey through the book of Jude here, and uh, tonight, in fact, uh, we are going to be, in our discovery class, uh, we are going to be hearing about 30 different testimonies, faith stories, of those whose lives have been changed by Christ. And um, it uh, just uh, reminds me, of the importance that we're all ready to meet the Lord as we talk about this particular topic today on hell. And uh, so... If you're uh, just coming in uh, for the first day today, just want you to know that uh, we don't speak on hell every Sunday, (laughs) but uh, this does happen to be a day that uh, we're coming across this in the text in the the book of Jude here, and uh, there's a lot of confusion about this doctrine out there. So we're going to be taking a close look at exactly what the scriptures teach today. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that that you are a God of love, uh, so much so that uh, you sent Jesus on this great um, rescue adventure to provide a way of escape for us. Thank you that the scripture says, for God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world. That was never your intention but that the world through him might be saved thank you lord that beautiful verse john 3:17 right after john 3:16 tells us of your great love tells us of your intentions and lord um, there is a way of escape for every single human being lord and uh, that is our heart's cry today Uh, As Sue and I were just praying last night for our precious family and praying that our family circle would be unbroken in heaven someday. Lord, I pray that for each family circle represented here today, that we would uh, look to you and live. That is my heart's cry. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Rob Bell hit the evangelical church like a grenade at a potluck dinner, and the mess is still being cleaned up. When he launched a church called Mars Hill at the ripe old age of 29, no one could ever have guessed that they would explode into a mega church of 10,000 within a single decade. In 2011, Time Magazine named Rob Bell to their list of the 100 most influential people in the world, and then it all caved in, sort of, with the publication of his book, Love Wins. In short order, Rob was branded a heretic. He resigned his church. He moved to California, and he started a spiritual talk show. Surprisingly, the issue that put Bell out of favor with his fellow evangelicals was the doctrine of hell. In short, Bell doesn't believe it. He's basically a universalist, although Rob never uses that word. Universalism, the idea that God will save everyone, has been around since the time of a man named Origen in the early third century. He, too, was branded a heretic, and universalism was virtually dead for the next 1,600 years. It was only in the 1800s that some theologians began to resurrect Origen's beliefs and put them back on the table. Since then, universalism has come in several flavors. You have the pluralists. Uh, they're the ones who believe that there are many roads to God. Jesus is one of them. You have the Christian universalists. They're the ones who believe that Christ is the only way and that everyone eventually will profess Christ. These people point to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which says, in Christ, all will be made alive but they forget to read the next verse, which clarifies that it's all who belong to Christ who will be made alive at his coming. Most who promote universalism believe in the doctrine of a second chance, but they can't point to a single verse in the entire Bible that teaches that. Rather, the Bible says, Hebrews nine twenty seven: man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. In recent years, another movement has originated. It's gotten a lot of traction among evangelicals. It's called annihilationism. And it's the idea that God will simply extinguish the lost at the final judgment and they will be no more. This was British scholar, evangelical scholar, John Stott's position, and this created quite a stir in the evangelical circles because Stott was so highly um, appreciated. uh, Stott said, Emotionally, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable. And emotionally, I would agree, it deeply saddens me. But I would not use the word intolerable because Jesus clearly did not view it this way. He highlighted it in the context of a way of escape. In John 3.17, I just prayed this verse, Jesus said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. <clears throat> the very thought of people I love suffering forever is horrifying. But the way of escape, it's oh so close. Jesus suffered so that we wouldn't have to. Put your faith in him and live It's not complicated. In fact, Jesus taught that a small child can understand what faith is all about. So today, we come to a passage in the book of Jude that highlights the reality of the final judgment and eternity in hell. Verse 13 ends with these words, "Blackest darkness has been reserved forever.'" This is not a new concept in the book of Jude. In fact, back in verse 7, Jude speaks of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In verse 6, he speaks of angels who are bound with everlasting chains. Now today, we're going to look at three biblical proofs that an everlasting hell is real. It's real, friends. And God intended it to be a motivator to believers and a deterrent to unbelievers. Verses 13 to 16 unveil these three proofs that hell is real. The first proof is this. An everlasting hell was the prevailing Jewish worldview in the first century. Now, why is that important? It's important to understand this because Jesus would have had to go out of his way to disavow these beliefs if they were not true. But he never does that, not once. And neither does Jude. In verse 14, Jude says Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, they were the false teachers. He said, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly. Who are these men? Well, they are the ones referenced back in verse 13, for whom blackest darkness is reserved forever. Who pronounced their doom? Well, Enoch did, the seventh from Adam. According to Genesis chapter five, Enoch is the seventh generation to descend from Adam. He was born at about 3382 B.C. He was taken to heaven without dying about 3017 B.C. Noah was born 69 years later. It lays it all out in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch was a very godly man who lived in a very ungodly age. He was a hero to the Jewish people because he is the only one, other than Elijah, to not experience death. God just took him to heaven without dying, just like Elijah, who was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. Enoch's prophecy is the first human prophecy found in Scripture it was handed down by oral tradition from one generation to the next until it was finally written down a couple hundred years before Jesus was born. This quote is an accurate quote, even though its source, the book of 1st Enoch, was not included in the biblical canon. At least three other times, the Apostle Paul. Does this sort of thing. He accurately quotes non-biblical sources in order to make a legitimate spiritual point. He does this in Acts 17:28. He does it in First Corinthians 15:33. He does it in Titus 1:12. Now the reason Jude quotes Enoch is because his readers would be very familiar with the book of first Enoch. It was part of their written history and the traditions of the Jewish people, especially during the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. An everlasting hell, where the enemies of God and his people were punished forever, was part of the Jewish worldview. No serious practicing Jew would have disputed this. Now, this is one of the central arguments that Francis Chan makes in his book, Erasing Hell. Francis wrote his book in large part in response to Rob Bell, who wanted to erase hell. So Francis said, I got to check this out. Could it possibly be that the Christian church has gotten this wrong all of these years as Bell maintained. So Francis asked his good friend, Preston Sprinkle, to help him write his book. He chose Preston because Preston studied first-century Judaism for his doctoral dissertation. If you're going to understand Jesus in the New Testament, you have to understand what the world was like in the first century. In their book, Francis and Preston show us the evidence. The Jews of Jesus' day believed three things about hell. First, they believed that it is a place of punishment after the final judgment. Second, they believed it is fiery. It's described in images of fire and suffering. And third, they believed it is never-ending. Many critics of the doctrine of hell have pointed out that the Old Testament doesn't say much about hell. And that is true. The doctrine of hell is progressively revealed throughout the Bible. But that is also true of the doctrine of heaven. And it's also true about the doctrine of Christ as the prophecies continue to be revealed throughout the Old Testament. It's also true about the Holy Spirit. You don't have the complete doctrine in the Old Testament. You have bits and pieces of the doctrine. Same is true about the end times. The Old Testament saints, they had an incomplete picture of all of these things. Now, Daniel was one of the latter prophets, and he gives us the clearest picture of hell in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, Daniel gives this picture of the end of history. He says, there will be a time of distress, such as not happened since the beginning of nations until now, until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Does that sound clear? Sure does to me. Daniel is picturing the final judgment of mankind where all of the dead will be resurrected and the believers will go to heaven or everlasting life, the unbelievers will go to hell or everlasting contempt. Daniel wrote those words in about 550 B.C. Leading up to the birth of Christ, the Jewish writers continued to expound on Daniel's writings. They were stressing that hell was punishment, that hell was awful, and that hell is never ending. This was the world that Jesus was born into. This was the prevailing worldview at that time. But the key question is, was it accurate? And does Jesus affirm this worldview? This brings us to our second biblical proof that an everlasting hell is real. Second proof is this. An everlasting hell was taught by Jesus himself. Now, of course, this is all that we really need to know, isn't it? Does Jesus teach what Enoch is prophesying here in verse 14? Is Jesus teaching this? See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone to convict all of the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Are these words accurate? And did Jesus teach the very same things? The answer is yes and yes. It has often been said That Jesus taught more about hell than he did about heaven. And that is true. The longest and most detailed account of judgment is found in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. It begins when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all of the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and he will put the goats on his left. The sheep are welcomed into his kingdom, but the goats are not. Verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, Jesus concludes his teaching by saying this, then they, the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, will go away to eternal life. Now, notice in this passage that Jesus endorses all three pillars of the prevailing Jewish worldview about hell. First, does Jesus affirm that it's a place of punishment? Well, yes, he does. Verse 46, hell is described as punishment. In other words, it is not remedial. It is not corrective. It is not temporary as some would say about purgatory, which is not taught in Scripture. Rather, the purpose of hell is to punish the the devil and his angels. And, Jesus said, also those who reject Christ. On this earth, we have endless opportunities to place your faith in Christ. But once you die your chance is over. Second, does Jesus affirm that hell is a place of fire and suffering? Yes, he does. He describes it as eternal fire, just as he does in many other places. For instance, Mark chapter 9 verse 48. Hell is described as a place where quote, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Third, does Jesus affirm that hell is never ending? And again, the answer is clearly yes. In fact, Jesus compares eternal life with eternal punishment. The same Greek word is used. You cannot have eternal life without also having eternal punishment. Because the same Greek word, aeonios, is used. Aeonios means never-ending time. So why would Jesus use such horrifying language if it were not true? And why would Jesus tell a story like the one in Luke 16, where a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus both die. And immediately, Jesus said, they find themselves in the afterlife. Lazarus was in paradise, Jesus taught. But the rich man found himself someplace else. Jesus said of the rich man, in hell... Where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham with Lazarus by his side. So he calls out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Why on earth would Jesus tell such a story if it were not an accurate representation of the afterlife. His audience was certainly not surprised. This is exactly the same teaching that their Jewish rabbis had been saying for years. The same Jesus who often corrected the scribes and the Pharisees he did it over and over again, but on this one, he essentially said, hey, guys, you got this one right. Hell is punishment. Hell is fiery, and hell is never-ending. Now, the Pharisees were confused in how to get to heaven and how to avoid hell but they did accurately teach the reality of both. So let's just pause here for a moment and ponder the question, why did Jesus give so many warnings about hell? Well, let me tell you what this does for me. Every time we sing in Christ alone, as we did this morning, My emotions climax when we sing the words, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Friends, we are sinners, and the price of sin is death and hell. Friends, we don't catch the gravity of that. In fact, a lot of times, we just blow it off. And when I say we, I mean me too, because sin is serious and we can so easily forget this. When you look lustfully at someone, when you refuse to forgive someone, when you look enviously at all your neighbor's stuff, this grieves the heart of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? It's death. That's what the Bible says. It was for Adam and Eve and it is for us. When Jesus hung on a cross, he absorbed the wrath of God. He broke the power of Satan and he erased the penalty of sin as he died in our place. Friends, Jesus bore the full measure of hell itself so we wouldn't have to. A few years ago, there was a church committee. This is a true story. They wrote to the authors of In Christ Alone, and they wanted to change the words. <laughs> Instead of singing, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, they wanted to sing, on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Well, that's true. But oh, there's so much more. So the authors of Stuart Townend and Keith Getty, they objected to that. Now this was happened to be a Presbyterian committee on congregational song. They wanted to substitute these words. The love of God was magnified. Stuart and Keith said no. <laughs> and good for them. God's people... You and I, we need to know, we need to understand that Jesus absorbed the full measure of God's wrath so we wouldn't have to. He suffered hell for us. That's the glory of salvation. And there is something lost if we ignore the fact that we're actually saved from something serious, we're saved from sin and Satan and death and hell itself. This stuff is real. Which brings us to our third biblical proof. An everlasting hell was also taught by Jesus' followers. Jude's verse 16 it says. These men, these false teachers, they're grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves, flatter others for their own advantage. Who are these men? While you look back at verse 13. They're the ones for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Now, here's what's interesting. If you look over at the book of 2 Peter, written by Peter, the uh, leader of the disciples. you're going to notice a lot of similarities between the Book of Jude and the Book of Second Peter. In fact, 19 of Jude's 25 verses find parallels in the book of Second Peter, including the phrase, "Blackest darkness is reserved for them." That is also found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. You see, both books, 2 Peter and the book of Jude, focus on the theme of false teachers, and both books present their future as consisting of eternal punishment. Now, here's another fact, very interesting. Every single New Testament author writes about future judgment, the last judgment, or they write about hell Peter does Paul does James does Jude does Matthew does Mark does Luke does John does the author of Hebrews does all of them wrote about judgment or hell they did not they didn't teach as extensively on hell as Jesus did but every last one of them endorsed the teachings of Jesus. The most vivid descriptions are found in the book of Revelation. Hell is described as a lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14, and 15. Hell is described as a place where the smoke, quote, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. That's found in Revelation 14, verse 11. I take no pleasure in telling you this. But I am simply doing so to underscore the fact that there is no possible way that Rob Bell and his followers are right unless the word of God is dead wrong. Now, if you'd like to study this question, in further detail, I highly recommend it's an 80-page book. Is hell for real to, or does everyone go to heaven? Four outstanding evangelical leaders each write a chapter: Tim Keller, Al Moeller, J.I. Packer, and Robert Yarbrough. And virtually every leading evangelical of our of our age is in agreement with them including all of my heroes, John MacArthur, David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, John Piper, they all agree. My professors at seminary that I sat in their classes, Wayne Grudem, Don Carson, Doug Moo, David Larson, men who've shaped my life and my ministry. It's rare to see this level of agreement on any one doctrine. But you see it here because the biblical witness is so clear and compelling, and it is overwhelming. Hell is real, and it is never-ending conscious punishment. I close with this. I love Francis Jan. I love Francis Chan because he's not only an awesome Christian leader. He's not only authentic and real, but he's passionate. Everything he says, you feel the passion and the emotion behind it. And that is why I love his book on hell. You see, Francis doesn't just give you the raw facts about hell. He enters into the emotions of believing that it's true. Here's how he begins one of his chapters in his book, Erasing Hell. Francis says, and I quote, as I write this chapter about hell, I'm sitting here in the middle of a busy Starbucks. Okay? Now imagine just a moment. You're at your favorite restaurant. Or your favorite coffee shop. You know, uh, Sue and I were just up to Nelson Brothers last Friday night. Had dinner up there. Place was packed. 20, 30 minutes to even get in, you know? You know the feeling. So he's sitting here in a busy Starbucks. Francis Chan says this. Every time I look up from my computer screen, I see that I'm surrounded by thirsty customers racing to the counter to, to uh, fix up, uh, to find, fill up on lattes and iced teas and mochas. These, these ones are happy, they're busy, they're enjoying life, they're laughing, they're chatting, of course, they're texting Two moms look as if they just got done jogging. They're sitting next to me, digging into each other's lives. Another couple just left. They were all over each other. Typical young couple without a care in the world. He continues by writing this. There's joy, laughter, coffee, jazz, texting, talking, flirting, friendship, This is life, he says. I love it. And so do they. The place buzzes with life. Meanwhile, Francis says, I sit here reading passage after passage after passage, which all says that some of these people are going to hell. And it sickens me to say that. And I can't explain how conflicted I feel right now. There are at least a dozen people within 10 feet of me. That was before COVID, obviously. He says, there are at least a dozen people within 10 feet of me right now that may end up in the agony that I'm studying about. What do I do? That's his question. That's a great question, isn't it? After all, what I've talked about today is not just about doctrine, it's about destinies. Your destiny, my destiny. That's gonna go on billions and trillions of years. Francis Chan has three takeaways for us as believers. The first, he says, the warnings about hell should arouse a greater urgency among us to reach the lost. The Apostle Paul says this, Romans 9 verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers those of my own race. Did you catch that? Paul was willing to endure hell himself so that his fellow Jews could be saved. I don't know about you, but that puts me to shame. He loved people like crazy, especially those close to him. His frank list, F-R-A-N-C, friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, coworkers, May God help us. If you're like me, sometimes I get more wrapped up in my to-do list than my frank list. you have that problem too? God help us not to be like that. Paul loves his Frank list, and I encourage you to love all of those in your social circle and start praying for them, and then ask God to open the doors to the gospel in their lives and ask God for an opportunity to share. Second takeaway Francis Chan has to offer uh, to us as believers, he said, the warnings ab- about hell should cause us to rejoice over our salvation. You see, the same Paul, that unceasing anguish over the lost in uh, Romans 9-2, also commands us in in Philippians 4-4 to rejoice in the Lord always. When we study about hell, it makes us realize how much we're saved from. And that's worth singing about. And it's worth praising about. And it's worth testifying about. So take time to rejoice. It's good for the soul. The third takeaway Francis has to offer, each and every one of us, be absolutely sure. God wants everyone to be saved. In Ezekiel 18.23, the Lord says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? I love the words of the Apostle Paul when he addressed a crowd in Lystra, and he said, we're bringing you good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their way, but he has not left himself without a witness. Every person on earth has an opportunity to be saved. You say, well, what about the heathen? <laughs> The Lord has given them light. And if they respond to the light, you know what's going to happen? God's going to give them more light. God's going to give them more light. Everyone in hell will have deserved to have been there. Someday we will see that. God has not left himself without a witness. Put your faith in him and live. Accept the incredible gift of the cross where Jesus took upon himself the punishment that we deserved and he gave to us instead life, healing, and redemption that comes only through grace. Have you received the free gift of salvation through Christ?